Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Good morning. It's Friday. Super duper early. As I am wont to do from time to time, I took a nap yesterday afternoon, set my alarm for two hours, and then I woke up six and a half hours later. So I've been up all night reading. <laughs> and you know what that means? Clint is going to do another deep dive. Uh, not really. I, this is kind of a potpourri of, of topics that are very interesting and important, and I'm going to break them all down. As many of you know, based off of the Top Lobster shirt I'm wearing, ESG, Evil Socialist Garbage, uh, this has been a topic close to my heart for quite some time, literally, right now on my shirt. Uh, but I I wanted to talk a little bit about AOC, because AOC during congressional hearings yesterday, talked about ESG. And she tried to explain why it's a benefit. And I'm going to explain why she's an idiot. Ready? Here we go. <laughs> she is so, so dumb. It's really remarkable. Uh, all right. Here, yields back. Chair recognized Ms. Ocasio-Cortez from New York for five minutes. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Uh, Mr. Fredericks, if you had to describe your job to a layperson, um, how would you how would you describe it in one or two sentences? I'm the chief investment officer. My job is to maximize returns for the state of Illinois and our beneficiaries. And your beneficiaries are the citizens and and folks in who reside in the state of Illinois, correct? To the citizens of the state, they're the participants in college savings plans and retirement savings plans and retiree pensioners. So everyday people saving for college, saving for retirement, and who really just want to make sure they can put their dollar in a long-term investment that is stable, correct? Most of these people put their money in and they expect not to look at the next quarter, but we look at the next quarter century. And that's a distinction between what we see sometimes on Wall Street or in other types of short-term investment, where you really just want to look at what's going to make you money by the end of the year or in the end of a quarter, correct? Frequently, a CEO might be motivated by a bonus, trying to hit a point um, for the next quarterly profit report. We want to make sure they're putting the company on a sustainable path to be profitable for the next 10 or 20 years, because that's what family saving for college and people saving yes. for retirement. Care. And in the course of your work, have you... Let me pause it real quick. This is a CIO, chief investment officer uh, for state uh, for state pensions. But by the way, this was a couple of weeks ago. I, I, I saw it yesterday, but it was actually May 10th. Um, but he's talking about how, you know, you want to have a longer term investment horizon or analysis and i'm like isn't that your job as the cio to to shift those funds if you think that you're invested in a company that is is taking too short a time horizon analysis with their investing decisions and that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing so why do you need esg why notice that short-term profit-seeking behavior is not always consistent with long-term returns for everyday people. I love that she says that as if it's like some revelatory insight. Yeah, sometimes short-term thinking is not to your benefit. Thanks, AOC. Really profound stuff here. Correctly, the example we used with Purdue Pharma, when they sold highly addictive uh, drugs to Americans, they made money hand over fist. It's a great business model to sell an addictive drug to someone. Mm -hmm. But until when those people start dying off, their relatives engage in class action lawsuits that sank that company. Or you can have a railroad company that determine we can make more money by cutting mm -hmm. staff by 30%. We can add more cars to the rail to make more money. Mm -hmm. And we don't spend time moving the cars around to distribute load. And then when that railroad has a derailment in Ohio, mm -hmm. it costs that company real dollars. It costs investors, shareholders, and beneficiaries. Yeah, and what, what, are, what are the points that are even being made here? He's like, so, you know, Purdue Pharma, uh, which, by the way, got FDA approval for these incredibly addictive drugs, which they lied about. And the FDA wasn't held responsible, but certainly, uh, you know, Purdue was uh, held liable for enormous sums. What what is what's the point that's being made here? And then you have a, a railroad company that's that's putting too many carts on the tracks and it ends up derailing. Like there's liability. That's the whole reason for these these companies, these CEOs, the managers of those businesses to not go down a short-sighted path. 
So the shareholders of those individual companies should be hiring CEOs that take a longer time horizon uh, analysis when they're making their decisions. It's pretty easy to do that. You don't need the government involved. In fact, the whole reason that Purdue Pharma became the juggernaut it was was because of FDA approval. FDA approval, which gives the consumer the sense of uh, security that's illusory. I mean, honestly, it's just nonsense. It's interesting that you bring that up, Mr. Ferricks, because um, I think what we're seeing here is that the other side of the aisle is making the argument here that we should just look at the balance sheets, the short-term returns, and the short-term investments in order to make long-term financial decisions. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Why would you only look at the short term? What? I can't imagine that anyone on the other side of the aisle, as she framed it, actually said, we should only be looking at the short term. But the irony of that is that this committee right now and in the past has been charged with investigating companies that have abused the public by deliberately leaving critical information off those balance sheets. You've seen that in your work, haven't you, Mr. Frederick? None, none of the things she's referencing are remedied by ESG whatsoever. Just want to make that very clear. These businesses aren't going to stop doing stupid stuff because of ESG. In fact, ESG is the latest stupid stuff that they're doing. We've, we've all seen this. I heard, I heard a talk about bad data. There was bad data, those false data that sunk Enron. This had nothing to do with ESG. You can look and find bad data anywhere. It's the job of a, an investor to sort through that data and we, to look through multiple lenses. Right. If I recall correctly, it was Enron who had a sweetheart deal in the state of California. So, and, and they committed fraud. Enron no longer exists. What are we doing here? These businesses that they consistently cite are gone because they were held liable for their criminality. Now, if you want to put them behind bars, go ahead and do that. But if, as of now, these companies don't exist because they acted in a terrible way, it's pretty straightforward. We just lived through this with SBF and FTX. They're gone. <laughs> You're prosecuting the, the CEOs right now. We just saw this two years ago. We went through a multi-installment investigation of DuPont's poisoning with respect to PFAS in water. Veterans communities, communities that live around military bases, airports, etc., dealing with reproductive cancers, testicular cancers, from information that was withheld from those balance sheets. Norfolk Southern and the train derailment in East Palestine. Those communities are, are struggling to access information that this company is hiding because it is not necessary to put on their balance sheets. Right now, we are investigating Abbott for baby formula and, and the issues that were happening with infants dying in baby formula. And that, too, was kept off balance sheets, but also had financial impacts on the performances of those companies. They had to take that production offline. And so the argument here is that our attorney, that, that our, uh, our investment managers in different states should not take this information into account when making investment decisions for the public. That is not the counter argument whatsoever. As a fiduciary for your investors' capital, you should be looking at the liability that exists within whatever business you're going to invest in or buy the shares, which is essentially investing in the business. So it's a straw man. She is straw manning the counter argument to ESG. I just want to make that very, very clear. She is not at all grappling with the arguments that I've made or others have made about why ESG is ultimately counter to the fiduciary duty of the money manager themselves. Mr. Ferrix, can you really do your job if you're just looking at short-term returns, if, you, if your job is for the long-term financial health of people saving for college and retirement. No, he can't. But that isn't alleviated by ESG. I can't believe that they're even like attempting to frame it in this way. No, as a fiduciary for families saving for college, for people saving for their retirement, you know, they don't really care so much if a company is profitable next quarter. 
They care if it is profitable the next 10, 20 years or quarter century. And so when we talk about where this push is coming from, why now, why is this happening? This is happening because the nature of value in companies has changed. We still do traditional financial analysis, but we layer on another level of analysis to deal with these risks, and they are material. They may deal with human capital, they may deal with workers, they may deal with the environment, but they have real-world consequences on the bottom line of these corporations, and if we don't have access to that information, it's like investing with a blindfold on. Thank you. Well, then you don't invest in those companies, right? I mean, that's, that's really the market solution here. You don't need to have force applied. Oh my God, it's so frustrating. All right, so for those that are new to the show, because I'm sure I get new people all the time, uh, I put out a tweet that went pretty damn viral, got 300,000 impressions, which is crazy. Um, wrote a bit of a novel, uh, forgive me for being long-winded, but sometimes I gotta, gotta do it. Uh, so there's a lot of libertarians that stand in opposition to the uh, consumer strikes or protests that are happening because of the wokeification of corporations. And while I don't much care, well, I'll, I'll read it to you and let you guys decide, then I'll explain a little bit further. Uh, but for those that are totally in the dark about what's been happening, Miller Lite, Target, Bud Light, bunch of, like North Face, a whole bunch of other companies have been under, under pressure by conservative influencers uh, to get their audiences to boycott them because they keep continue to adv uh, advertise in a woke way. That's a synopsis, but I'll get into the details here. The Target, Miller Lite, and Bud Light boycotts are only the beginning. For those that prefer to avoid the culture war, I thought I would explain why I support these protests. I don't much care if a company wants to insult their customers. A private business has every right to market their product in new and creative ways, and sometimes it will backfire. That's business. If Target really has so many transitioning toddler customers that they can profit off of clothing options for this micro niche market, okay. But in reality, they don't. The truth is that there is no profit to be found in appealing to less than 1% of America while alienating 50% of their loyal customer base. The underlying financial incentive is not about you, the customer, at all. It is about the financial titans like BlackRock, whom will only acquire shares of your stock if the company's ESG score is raised. Virtue signaling marketing campaigns are an easy way to raise your ESG score. This is what I oppose. I love capitalism. We need to get back to capitalism. This is not capitalism. It is more aptly described as fascism. The push for DEI and ESG, that's diver diversity, equity, and inclusion, and environmental, social, and governance, is derived from the UN, the United Nations. The UN has rebranded and relaunched ESG under SDG, or Sustainable Development Goals. The people who concocted these plans despise capitalism. They fancy themselves our benevolent overlords while viewing us as a plague upon the earth. They realized about 20 years ago that we would never accept a poorer lifestyle voluntarily. So they began propagandizing our children into a cult-like belief that carbon emissions, literally the building blocks of life, would mean our collective demise. Since we would never vote to accept worldwide austerity and poverty, the only way they could modify our behavior was to infiltrate the capitalist model with Marxist ideals. Old Marxism divided society into class struggle. New Marxism divides society into identitarian struggle. Same general game plan, same general outcomes. Cultural discord, increased state power, eventual starvation and war. To build anew, they must first destroy. There is no limit to the collateral damage that they are willing to unleash. That is where the kids come in. That is, in part, why the younger generation has skyrocketing gender dysphoria issues, anxiety, depression, suicide, drug addiction. There is no price too steep when your overlords are convinced that what exists is evil and must be destroyed. Unfortunately, we are what they wish to destroy. The relationship between big business and big government has been on full display as of late. The Twitter leaks gave us a small window into the unholy alliance between them. Due to our constitutional protections, the governments of the world have begun using their regulatory and central banking framework to force, quote-unquote, private businesses into violating our rights. It is coercive. It is likely illegal. But the lunatics are running the asylum, and I don't think they'll investigate and prosecute themselves. In other words, our collective financial capacity to break this unholy alliance may be our last peaceful line of defense. It is imperative that we bring these corporations to heal and realign them with their customer base as opposed to the crony capitalists. It will not be easy, but it is not impossible. Break them.
for the sake of your children, break them. Only when they apologize and stop with this insanity should you relent. This is not merely a culture war. It is economic warfare on a global scale, and it will ultimately dictate our future. Marxist, fascist, technocratic, globalist domination, or a future based in peace, prosperity, and a re-embrace of human liberty. You have my answer. So that's what I sent out. And for those that are longtime uh, you know, listeners, viewers, you guys already probably understood my stance, but I don't think I've ever put it in such a you know, concise fashion. So there you have it. That's my operating thesis as to what we're up against. I'm very grateful to see that you know, almost 5,000 people liked it already. Uh, I know it was a long one, so to get that many people to read it was pretty cool. But I really think that I have this analysis down really, really close to perfect at this point. Uh, I think that's exactly what we're up against. I think that's exactly the operating uh, philosophy that our opponents are functioning under. And I think that I'm also correct that this may be our last peaceful option in terms of pushing back against the wokeification of capitalism. Um, and as I made clear, this is not actually capitalism that we're facing. And for those that think that I may be overstating uh, why these ad campaigns happen in that way, we have the homie Patrick Bet David, who breaks it down for us. Their CEI score, their ESG score. Right. That's what this does. What, what is this? I'm familiar with DEI, ESG. Not, this is a new one now, CEI. What By is the this? way, here's the craziest thing about CEI. CEI is a form of a, uh, a DEI. You know, DEI is what? Diversity, equity, equity inclusive, inclusive, the whole thing. Uh, yeah. CEI is Corporate Equality Index. Corporate. And the ones that give the scores to them is a company called HRC. HRC stands for Human Rights Hillary Campaign. Hillary Rodham Clinton. Oh, HRC, no, is, sorry. HRC is Human Rights Campaign. Here's the crazy part. You ready for this? Yeah. They got started in 84. You know who funds Human Rights Campaign? George Soros. It's funded by uh, Open Society Foundation. Okay. Do you know who runs Open Society Foundation? George Soros. George Soros. Oh, so yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, literally. And they come to your company. Yeah. And they measure the score. Only 20 people, 20 companies have a perfect score of 100. And they'll come back and say, here's what you need to do to improve. They have a whole structure, by the way. Workforce protection, five points possible. No discrimination. It's called the woke rating? Yeah, it's called the woke rating. <laughs> Computer. <laughs> if you want to show this, Rob, iPhone, or I'm going to send it to the... Uh, no, this is exactly how they are scoring uh, different companies' workforce protection. That gives you five points. Uh, inclusive benefits, 50 points. Criteria here includes providing health care for same-sex couples. Uh, supporting an inclusive culture, 25 possible points, including gender-neutral dress codes and trans-inclusive restroom facilities policies. Number four is corporate social responsibility. You get 20 points. Marketing or advertising to LGBTQ consumers, which include Nike and Bud Light's use of transgender spokesperson Dylan Mulvaney. That's crazy. And then number five is responsible uh, citizenship, 25 points uh, deducted if a company yeah. gives money to organizations whose primary mission includes advocacy against LGBTQ uh, organizations, which is not defined, but could include Christian groups. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when I say that that's exactly what's happening with these ad campaigns, I'm not so crazy, am I? Yeah, not so crazy. Uh, that's why, okay? The CEI from the HRC, the Human Rights Campaign, funded by Open Society Foundation, which is George Soros's funded organization. That's why. And it all plays into the World Economic Forum and their ESG uh, you know, plans or plots. <laughs> so when you combine those two plus diversity, equity, inclusion, which was then mandated by Obama in 2011 to be uh, implemented at all federal departments and then the federal departments, I'm talking every federal department in America had to have DEI, had to have a diversity, equity, inclusion office or implementation program and they do business with the private sector and they will only do business with the private sector that is also following the DEI, ESG, woke, World Economic Forum, Open Society Foundation, HRC, worldview. That's what it is. Okay. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so you, uh, and then just, just yesterday, actually, Following the first ever public hearing held by New York City Banking Commission today, all three members voted to freeze deposits at Capital One and KeyBank after the bank failed to submit required plans demonstrating their efforts to root out discrimination. So what that meant, this was just uh, New York City, like their actual funds. They said that they were going to stop 
depositing with Capital One or KeyBank because they weren't going along with the wokeification. They they weren't willing to quote unquote root out discrimination, but really what that means usually is just uh, inverted hiring quotas where you have to be prejudicial against Caucasians to the benefit of minority candidates. So, I mean, <laughs> this is this is what it is, folks. It's not. This is. I know. I know because what I'm saying. Uh, you know, comes across as conspiratorial, but it's in the open. I mean, they're very proud of it. We're talking about some of the richest people on earth that are orchestrating these sorts of like accounting metrics that then all major money managers are essentially forced into working with because they want to have a good relationship with the government. And the governments, all Western governments, as far as I know, I don't know of any that are in opposition to this stuff, all Western governments are pushing this simultaneously too. So if you're a big money manager, you have to have a good relationship, not just with your local government, but usually most Western governments, because that's where all of the investment investment capital goes. Over 50% of global capital is invested in the U.S. market alone. Let me say that one more time. 50% of global investor capital is in the U.S. market. So if you think that this is just a, you know, crazy U.S. phenomenon, you got to understand all of the money managers that are, are playing in this game, they're going to have already, you know, changed their investing protocols to, to adapt to the U.S. market model. And because they then, I mean, so much of that capital is deployed in America, it's very natural that these same sort of guidelines and stupidity are going to spread to the rest of the world and they are and uh in dramatic ways i mean so much so that you see murals and and protests that were celebrating in europe the three-year anniversary of george floyd's untimely demise like what but there's just the wokeification of the west broadly is is what's happening and i'm completely convinced that this is a product of the infiltration of the quote-unquote capitalist model which is not capitalist it's crony capitalist and it's fascistic there you have it sorry <laughs> sorry to break the bad news uh but i hope that that thesis makes sense for you guys and i hope that you can uh understand why it's not as simple as just going oh don't just don't shop there if you don't like it just don't shop there and i haven't even got into the like the you know spiritual or the moral aspects of like why are you putting gay you know facing items into kids sections why are you doing that why would a 5 6 7 year old be wearing gay pride clothing like do you think that they are even cognizant of their own sexuality at that age seems like a pretty bizarre stance to take um, it seems like force, I mean, at, at best, it's forcing kids into some sort of activist role for something that they have no idea what they're doing. They don't understand it at all. And you're just allowing their parents to use them as billboards for their wokeness. Seems pretty dumb to me and bordering on evil in its own right. So I would oppose it on a lower level for that. But once you add in the fact that this is also a product of the Marxist fascistic totalitarian takeover of the global economy, uh, yeah, th that's why I support these protests. And that's why I think that um, the libertarian community ought to be doing so as well. Even if you're super, you know, if you're an ally <laughs> or whatever. You know, like, like they need allies as if there's like some sort of huge hatred towards gay people that exists in America today. I love gay people. I don't know anybody that hates gay people. So what are we talking about here? We have to have allies still. I mean, this is all so it's just fucking diluted. It's just diluted. I grew up in a time where we were not nearly as nice to gay people. Sadly, that's what it was like when I was growing up. It's just not that way anymore. And I think that that's good, personally. I like it better. I like that people can feel like they can be themselves. Um, and I think a lot of gay people also don't like the trajectory of things where 
so much of this propaganda is being targeted towards kids. And that's really what the conservatives are protesting on behalf of. And I'm with them on that in spirit. But for me, there's a much bigger issue at play. And I think that even if you aren't with them in that regard, you can be with these protests for my purposes or yours in, in fighting ESG. And uh, yeah, let's see if it prevails. Let's hope. Uh, so I have a uh, <laughs> crazy article from the Washington Examiner. Uh, but before I do that, I, I got one more rant for AOC because once again, she said something dumb, which she does so, so frequently. But they are accusing Democrats of saying we spend too much. For anyone that wants to entertain that thought, I ask you to think about the last time a person said has said in this country that the government does too much for them. <laughs> As Josie tweeted out yesterday, the libertarians have entered the chat. Woman, the government does, everything the government does is more than I want it to do. So every day I feel that way. And almost every day I say it out loud. So yeah, they do far too much. But I think what's really remarkable is that the framing for this statement is that the conservatives are saying that, you know, <laughs> the government spends too much. So let me ask you, when's the last time you felt as if you got too much from the government? Hey, that's not the only factor. There is also a supply side issue here when it comes to the money to dole out. You don't have it. We're $32 trillion in debt. We're facing a debt ceiling and we have the potential for a national default on our debt. And, and if we don't go that route, then we have the potential for a hyperinflationary death spiral. It is not necessarily just about what the population of America wants based off of some sort of 51% vote. There are economic matters at hand here, ma'am. You cannot just create cash and dole it out to your electorate without there being consequences eventually. And we have began to experience those consequences. You idiot that their social security check was too high, that teachers are paid too much. When was the last time anyone has heard or seen that? <laughs> oh God. What a, what a like infantile argumentation. When's the last time you heard someone who's receiving a handout from the government say that they feel like they're getting plenty? <laughs> Oh, yeah. People like free shit, AOC. What a remarkable insight, you genius. Who would have thought? People like free stuff. It's a fucking mind bender, isn't it? People like free stuff. Oh, incredible. So insightful. All right. We're going to shift off of AOC. I feel like I've given her enough hell. Uh, this is a... Uh, absolutely excruciating article from the Washington Examiner, which came out just yesterday. And uh, the title says, we must deal with China and Russia at the same time. <laughs> uh, sorry, this was five days ago, May 21st, by Michael Rubin. says, Beijing has threatened to resolutely smash any Taiwanese move towards independence. Never mind that mainland China has seldom in its history controlled the island. Elbridge Colby, founder of the Marathon Initiative and the lead writer of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, argues that any Chinese aggression will be overwhelming. Quote, if they're really serious about it, they're going to go big and they're going to take it and they're going to dare us to try to reverse the trend, he explained. Why is Biden administration doing Russia's bidding at the G7? To prepare for that contingency, he argues the United States should allow neither Russia nor Ukraine to distract it from the real threat, China. For much of the intelligence community, Colby's arguments represent conventional wisdom. Colby is right that China poses a real threat, though both uh, assessment of China and either... Sorry, there's some weird graphic thing right in the middle of this. Uh, though both his assessment of China and the either-or scenario with Ukraine are wrong. First, there is limited evidence that China would go big on Taiwan. Despite a massive military buildup that successfully leads weak leaders in Washington and outside to self-deter. I love that they're just automatically weak because they don't want World War III with 1.4 billion people 
<laughs> China's go-to strategy of choice has been to salami slice, make su successive tiny moves that fall below the threshold of generating a military response that in some achieve much the same aim. This served China well, not only in the South China Sea, where it has annexed Filipino, Vietnamese, and Malaysian reefs and rocks and transformed them into, transformed them into islands that the People's Liberation Army have fortified, but also in India. China continues to occupy a chunk of Kashmir the size of Maryland and in recent years has encroached further not only into Ladakh but also into Arunachal Pradesh. Uh, while China could rain death and destruction upon Taiwan cities with artillery and missiles, occupying the country is another thing entirely. Taiwan's topography is among the most challenging in the world. To occupy Taiwan might mean sacrificing the lives of tens of thousands of men fighting the inevitable guerrilla campaign. Here, China's demography is an Achilles heel. Thanks to the legacy of the one-child policy, its army consists of only children. Oh, of okay. I understand the framing now. Before, when I read this and he said only children, I was like, what do you know? Their army doesn't consist of only children. He means like only child, only children. China may be an increasingly totalitarian dictatorship, but even dictators must be mindful of angering their core supporters. In this case, the elite families from Beijing and Shanghai, who will be loath to lose their only sons upon whom they counted for their future prosperity, ordinary Chinese brainwashed by the Chinese media bubble. I love that. I love it when, you know, Western people talk about how the Chinese are brainwashed as if we're so free thinking after three years of lockdowns and, you know, forced medical treatments. Yeah. Okay. Uh, may rally around Xi Jinping's eridentism, just as Russians, Russians embrace Vladimir Putin's nonsensical interpretation of history. Yes. His interpretation of Russia, Ukraine's history is nonsensical because, you know, Obviously, people in the West understand the history of Russia and Ukraine better than he does. Xi uh, likely understands that the mountains of central Taiwan would be his Bakhmut, with consequences far more grave. Best part about this is that this was May 26th, which was last, uh, excuse me, this was not May 26th. It was uh, May 21st, and the following day, Bakhmut fell to Russia. So <laughs> he says, Xi likely understands that the mountains of central Taiwan would be his Bakhmut. <laughs> um yeah, Bakhmut was a huge failure for the Ukrainian side of that war. So, what? Uh, continuing on, his strategy would likely be more be to slowly tighten the noose and cause the Taiwanese to doubt outside support. Taiwan Relations Act may be the basis of U.S. commitments to support Taiwan, but it does not apply to the entirety of our country. Rather, it specifies that the U.S. will only seek to defend the main island and the Pescadores, a small archipelago in the middle of Taiwan Strait, Matsu and Kimoi, epicenters of the first Taiwan, yeah, lie outside the Axe commitments. So too does Pratis Island, which lies closer to Hong Kong than it does to Taiwan's main island. China can seize these and establish the precedent of encroaching on Taiwanese sovereignty in a way that creates a precedent and undermines future commitments to defend the island. Simply put, Xi may calculate that Joe Biden is no Dwight Eisenhower, Antony Blinken is no John Foster Dulles, and Jake Sullivan is just a shadow of Robert Cutler. Love that they're referencing all World War II leadership. Notice that? That should bother you. Continuing on, Xi shares with Putin a hostility to the rules-based liberal order. I love how they continue to use rules-based liberal order in, you know, as a placeholder for what it really means, which is just U.S. global hegemonic domination. <laughs> That's what the rules-based liberal order really is. But they framed it in such a airy fairy beautiful thing no one could possibly oppose it without being just an evil devil worshiper the two are as crucial to each other as imperial japan was to nazi germany and fascist italy <laughs> once again a world war ii reference just as leaving one theater to concentrate solely on the other was nonsensical to the greater greatest generation so too should abandoning ukraine to counter a poor china taiwan assessment be a non-starter today so he's calling for a dual front World War III, because that's what it ultimately means if we're to prevent China's move on Taiwan. You know that. You know that. I hope you know that. I hope you know that we're not going to be able to prevent it otherwise. So read through the, read through the lines here. Final, final sentence. Standing up to dictators, including those acting in concert, is important. Prematurely ceding freedom to one plays into the autocracy sought by both. Michael Rubin. Ooh, buddy, I don't like you at all. I don't like you at all. And uh, just to demonstrate how 
stupid the people that rule over us are. We've got a video from Liam Cosgrove, which was DM'd to me, and I found it to be fascinating. And this is New York Congressman Representative Jerry Nadler from New York. And let's hear what he has to say. It's high time. It should have been done a long time ago. It's high time. And then what do you think about his previous comments, though, that it was it was too escalatory to do? I and think, then now it's I, sorry, the opening question was about the F-16s to Ukraine. I, I, I think he was wrong. I think, you know, every different weapon system versus too escalatory. And then we eventually gave it to them. And uh, they're fighting not only for their lives, they're fighting for democracy, they're fighting for the world order against, you know, just invasion of another country, altering borders by force, which is inadmissible since 1945. And we should give them whatever they need. And are you concerned that they will enter into Russian territory as there have been recent reports of Belgorod, the, the border city? Um, I'm not concerned. I wouldn't care if they did. You wouldn't care? <laughs> Wouldn't care if they did. So the entire West, but namely America, being the leader of the West still, even though we're on the verge of bankruptcy, uh, has been funneling not just e immense sums of money, totaling nearly $200 billion just from America, not to mention countless billions more from other nations, other Western nations, uh, but also weaponry. And he says, I don't care if the Ukrainians invade Russia. Do you understand that if you are arming another nation as they invade the largest nuclear power on Earth that has the most advanced nuclear arsenal, totaling almost 6,000 advanced nuclear warheads, that that would be an act of war against them? Do you understand that? I wouldn't care, is his retort to that inquiry. What a lunatic. If they wanted to Russia. Nope. Really, you would still turn about, them. Turnabout's fair play. I don't think they're going to do it in any large scale. But why should Russia feel that they can invade somebody else and be and, and, and have total safety at home? Well, the, the, the differentiating factor here is not whether or not Ukraine can do it, even though he just argued that, you know, you can't invade anyone else's sovereign territory. But setting that aside, since Russia did invade first, sure, you can say turnabout's fair play. That's a fair fair way to frame this, except for the fact that it completely dismisses our funding and arming and training and weaponry delivered and surveillance and guidance and everything else that America has given to the Ukrainians in their now proxy war and in the invasion of Russia. What a psychopath. But that would that would cross the line to a U.S. sanctioned invasion of Russia. By you don't Ukraine. have to sanction it. Well, you, you <laughs> we don't have to sanction it. He's he's a sitting congressman that just said, I don't care if they do it. <laughs> Look at his fucking face, too. We'd be providing the, the weapons that conducted it, is what I'm saying. Is if We're not providing it for that purpose. I said I personally wouldn't mind. <laughs> Look at that, dude. We're not providing it for that purpose. Are you kidding me? So you just you just give them, you know, HIMAR rockets and a bunch of tanks and F eighteen or F sixteens, and then what what happens with them after that isn't our doing. That's not our business. Are you fucking kidding me? And then he smiles coyly. Fuck. You personally wouldn't mind, but you know, you are a representative of the government. So. Well, I'm part of the government. I'm not part of the executive branch. Right. Um, so, but I think we should give them whatever they need. Okay. And, 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 you know, if, if an F-16 was to be used on Russia, you wouldn't come out and say, that's too much? That's too far? No, I don't think that's going to happen in any event, but no. They're, they're going to use F-16s for air defense, basically. But there are these and reports they, right they, now that American weapons are being used in Belgorod, which is, you know, a Russian territory. It's already happening. That may be, but they're not going to use major weapons. I mean, things like F-16s, they need for air defense over Ukraine so that they can provide air cover for their counterattacking things like that they're not going to waste it in russia these people are so dangerous they're so dangerous do you understand do you understand what they're doing and they're so flippant so flippant as to the i mean putting all of humanity on the razor's edge and it's just like i wouldn't mind <laughs> 
What the fuck are you doing, man? Do you have like any sense of concern? I mean, even if you're old and on your way out, like, do you have any concern for the your grandchildren, the next generations? Have these people just lost all sense of reality? Do you do you think you're impervious to nuclear warfare? Because I have a, I have a you know, <laughs> unfortunate memo for you. You're not. None of us are. None of us are. But they really seem to think that there's just no chance. There's no chance that Putin ever does something desperate. Well, I think there is a chance. And I think that chance has been increased exponentially since this war broke out and since the U.S. got involved. And it's tragic. Ugh. All right. So we got, uh, I think it was Jake Sullivan. Here we go. Uh, Jake Tapper interviewing, yeah, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. He says, why President Biden changed his stance on providing Ukraine's F-16 jets? Well, let's talk about some of the accomplishments uh, there in Japan. President Biden told the G7 leaders that the United States is going to support this joint effort to train Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16 fighter jets. As you know, just a few months ago, the president said there was no basis militarily for giving Ukraine jets and that Ukraine didn't need them at all. What changed and what? So it starts with you saying, thinking like <clears throat> maybe Jake Tapper is actually doing his job and questioning this decision making because he realizes that it has a, a significant potential of bringing about World War III. But wait for the next sentence. These jets not have been more effective if Ukraine had been trained and had them in time for the upcoming counteroffensive. <laughs> so in reality, his line of questioning is, why didn't you give Ukraine F-16 sooner? That is our media apparatus. That is how they function. Ugh. Well, actually, Jake, when President Biden answered that question, he was talking about the preparations that the United States and our allies were making with Ukraine for the counteroffensive. And the critical systems for the counteroffensive are not planes. They're tanks and artillery systems and HIMARS and huge amounts of ammunition. And the United States has mobilized an exceptional effort to deliver on time and in full everything Ukraine needs to launch this counteroffensive. Now that we've done that, we can look forward to the long-term capacity of Ukraine to be able to defend itself and deter Russian aggression. Fourth-generation fighter aircraft, Western fighter aircraft, F-16s are relevant to that fight. That's why the president uh, told his G7 colleagues this weekend that he will, in fact, support the training of Ukrainian pilots. But he is focused on the type of system needed for the phase of the fight that is at hand. And for this counteroffensive, he has delivered at speed and at scale what the Ukrainians need. Is President Biden going to allow European countries to give their F-16s to Ukraine? And will they uh, these jets arrive in Ukraine uh, before the end of 2023? I'm not going to put a timetable on it. What the president has said is that he'll sit with his European allies and with the Ukrainians to work out who, when, and how many uh, jets get transferred. And we're in the process of doing that right now. Well, let's talk about some of the... So, that's. I think it's important that you guys are aware that the Biden administration has now greenlit for uh, F-16s to be sent and... My understanding is that it's going to be the F-16s that are already in Europe. So I don't know if they're in Poland or where, but they're going to have to be stationed in NATO nations because if you're to put those F-16s in Ukraine, given that they don't have much in the way of air defense, I would imagine that the Russians would immediately strike them to take them out. So that means that you're going to be putting F-16s into adjacent, but NATO nations to Ukraine and, uh, I mean, if the Russians choose to strike those, given that they're going to be entering imminently into their own war zone, I think there, I mean, there's certainly a rationale there that they would be justified in doing so. And if they do so, that's an attack on a NATO nation in Article 5, which, me, which would mean World War III. Um, I just wanted to also mention briefly about the assessment that seems to be rampant when it comes to this, this war. And it is that a lot of people are questioning Putin and Russia's resolve 
because they are yet to attack a NATO nation in response to all, the, all of the intervention that's been transpiring. And I cannot believe how unbelievably deranged and insane that perspective is. Essentially, the way they frame it is, you know, all of these, all of these, you know, anti-war people, all of these libertarians that are in opposition to the military support that we've given uh, to the Ukrainians or have been proven wrong. Russia hasn't attacked a NATO nation in response. So obviously we can continue to do so and give them more. And there's, there is no breaking point. There is no limit to it. It doesn't matter that just yesterday uh, the, the Russians announced that they were moving their nuclear weapons into Belarus, which is adjacent to Ukraine and able to, you know, expedite their, their time on, uh, or their ETA on arrival for firing nuclear weaponry towards Europe. Uh, doesn't matter from their perspective that that still is just bluff and bluster. Essentially the only, the only limit that they have is when Russia to them overreacts to their infinite support to this war, well, then, then it's a problem. But what does that really mean for us is that if Russia reacts ever to the unlimited funding and weaponry that's being sent there, that then it would be on, that then World War III pops off immediately. So there is no escape hatch. It's like they're going to give them as much as they feel is necessary for Ukraine to win that war, even if it includes invading Russian territory. And if the Russians ever respond and attack a NATO nation in, in response to that, even if it's just the supply lines that are being funneled in to Ukraine from adjacent NATO nations, Still doesn't matter. It's that's Russia's fault. They're always the bad guy. There's no there's no wrongdoing on our side whatsoever. So we can continue to escalate. We can continue to push the envelope. We can continue to pressure and and get us closer and closer to a hot conflict between the two largest nuclear powers in human history. Okay, that's the plan. That's their worldview. Are you, are you comfortable with that? I am sure as fuck not. I am not comfortable with that at all. And the fact that this isn't being discussed, it's not even being debated. It's just like, it's a given. This is, this is the path. This is what we're doing. No debate. No debate. Just consistent funding increasing F-16s. F-16s to a fucking proxy war with the biggest nuclear power on Earth. What are we doing? Sorry, I, I I hate to talk about this as much as I do because it probably freaks people out. But I'm freaked out. I'm just I'm just reflecting my own feelings about this here. I'm very freaked out that this that, that we're ruled by people that seem to be completely detached from the reality of the situation. They really, really do. I mean, we are ruled by absolute morons. And I just feel like if the American people, if not just the American, but you know the people of the West, the ones that are in the line of fire from the Russian arsenal, if they choose to unleash it at some point. Well, if we don't say, look, this is crazy. I don't care to have the entire world die to dictate who gets to rule over the Donbass region. I really don't. So I hope more and more people will wake up to the fact that that's ultimately what we're doing. And it's crazy. And just a little bit more evidence as to, you know, those that say that, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Crimea years ago is without precedent. And ultimately they have, they have no claim on Crimea. I found this video to be very interesting. So there's a fact that I learned in Crimea that I didn't know before that really blows apart, I think, any claims by Ukraine to Crimea. So first of all, let me go over a little history so this all makes sense. Crimea officially became part of Russia in 1783 under Catherine the Great. Then when the Soviet Union was founded in 1922, it was part of the Soviet Union. In 1954, Premier Nikita Khrushchev essentially just gave Crimea over to Ukraine, which was also part of the Soviet Union. So in some ways, as people in Crimea told me, you know, we didn't think much of it at that time because... You know, we were still part of the Soviet Union. So in some ways it, it didn't matter so much. We didn't think 
we never anticipated the Soviet Union would collapse. Okay. Well, as 1991 rolls around, uh, the Soviet Union begins to look a little more fragile. And here's the interesting fact that I learned. In January of 1991, the people of Crimea held a referendum as to whether to become an autonomous republic. And they, in fact, voted to do that. So what does that mean? They voted to leave Ukraine and to become their own republic. This was in January of 1991. And I was told everyone honored this and recognized the referendum, including Ukraine. Now, this is important. So when the Soviet Union collapses, or really when it's overthrown by a coup at the end of 1991, the republics break up into different countries. And at that point, Crimea should have been autonomous. It should not have been part of Ukraine at this point. And so when it votes officially in 2014 to become part of Russia, this should have been honored. Uh, because again, Ukraine really didn't have a claim to it to begin with after the referendum of January 1991. So th there you have it. I think that that's a really important thing to keep in mind uh, as the whole, you know, <laughs> unprovoked Russian aggression narrative. Uh, there is a lot more complexity to this story and a lot more historical understanding that's necessary to really evaluate this in a fair way. And unfortunately, very few people are interested in doing so. Most people aren't, I mean, most people are just parroting exactly what they see on the news or what they're told to say. Most people have no idea any of the backstory between these two nations or how complex it is. So I just thought that that would be important for you guys to be privy to. And uh, one more bit of history that seems to be being buried rapidly. Rapidly, This was Zelensky in an interview. Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was March of 2022. Check it out. Called these conditions to end this war. They said you must change your constitution to give up your wishes uh, to join NATO, that you uh, should recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and that you recognize the independence of those two Russian separatist regions in the East. Are you willing to go along with all three of those conditions? What is your message to Vladimir Putin right now? So this was immediately after the invasion. This is when that uh, that peace treaty was allegedly on the table and nixed by Boris Johnson at the behest of the U.S. State Department. And this is what Zelensky says in March of 22. Does this sound like a man who wants to have this war drag out for years and years? Sure doesn't sound like it to me. First, I'm ready for a dialogue. Uh, we're not ready for the uh, capital, uh, capitulation because it's not me. This is about the people who um, elected me. Regarding NATO, I'm, have, I have cooled down regarding this question a long time ago. Uh, the, after we understood that Russia is not, that NATO is not prepared to accept Ukraine. I'm talking about security guarantees. I think that items regarding temporary occupied territories and unrecognized uh, republics that have not been recognized by anyone but Russia, these pseudo republics, but we can discuss and find a compromise on how these territories will live on. So, in other words, uh, if you've looked at the map recently as to the territory that Russia controls, uh, they have the Donbass. I mean, they have most of the, the eastern uh, borderlands uh, between Russia and Ukraine is under Russian control. So, also a prerequisite for admission into NATO is to have no conflict and have no, no border conflicts either. They have both in Ukraine. So the, the offer that was on the table or the demand, I guess you could say, because it was a demand at that time, was that they get rid of their uh, application to be added to NATO. I don't even know if they made a formal application. Basically, they, they, they promise or they contractually agree that they will not be added to NATO. So Russia has made that happen anyways, right? I'm just kind of checking off these requirements. Number two, who will have control over the Donbass region, which is, uh, 
think it's Luhansk and Donetsk, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, well, those territories are under Russian control right now. They have been uh, part of a civil war, low-level civil war, for eight years now. Uh, he seemed to be open to that idea of them being autonomous, which is essentially what Russia wanted then anyways. So it's like, check, check. <laughs> I mean, what what is the people people frame it as if like those were asks asks or demands that were completely unreasonable? Well, they've now taken it by force, so it could have been done prior, and and avoided this, avoided hundreds of thousands of casualties. I think that you know a rational observer would say, yeah, that ask is not unreasonable actually, particularly given the back story in the back history if you watch my debate with destiny i detailed much of it but this story is very complex and and ultimately there is no good guy in this fight and i think that you know the less death the better that's really my preference in all of it and i think that having uh the donbass region being autonomous and having crimea be part of russia and having Ukraine not added to NATO because there's no way that we would accept Mexico or Canada being added to the Warsaw Pact. <laughs> you know, like this is all just lunacy um, and pretty obvious stuff, to be honest. So I don't really understand the controversy in taking this this uh, oppositional stance to the, the current thing narrative that we have to continue down this, this rapid path towards World War III or you're un-American or you're a Putin puppet or russian propagandist or whatever it's like no i'm just thinking rationally and wanting less people to die including everyone listening to this right now i don't want any any of us to die i think this is all just dumb and crazy and ultimately to the benefit of the liberal world order which really just means western domination of territory that's over five thousand miles away from where i sit right now does that sound like our region that we have uh, a right to dictate how everything goes down? No, of course not. It's crazy. And if you think that we can prevail in a dual front World War III with both Russia and China, you're out of your fucking mind. Okay? So I don't care if that puts me into some category as a puppet of Putin, because I'm telling you the truth. The people that are saying the opposite are out of their minds. And you should tell them that every chance you get. You're crazy people, and you're risking all of human existence over a territory that no one knew the name of until a year ago. Referencing Donbass. Oh, my God. Concerning times. Uh, but yeah, I uh, good some good news for you guys. I recently got rebooked to head out to Virginia to meet up with the Timcast folks. Uh, I think it'll be, yeah, it's going to be next Thursday and Friday. I don't know if I'll be on IRL one or both or neither night. Uh, but I hope that we'll be formalizing my deal to do poker with the boys and hopefully, uh, be a sit in on IRL regularly. We'll see. I'll, uh, I'll keep you guys posted on that. Uh, but, uh, I, I did want to just say that, you know, oh, by the way, Converso, which is, I, I am you know, partner and sponsor with them. Uh, they are rebranding because the uh, the brand name, a lot of people thought like it was a Spanish <laughs> spelling because it ends with an O. Um, so they're rebranding. They're, uh, I will be doing more ad reads for them in the not too distant future, but they're, they're I guess they're like focus grouping the new name or whatever. So we'll stay tuned on that. Uh, but uh, I also want to just say, I don't do that many ad reads as you guys know. And I do that because I think one, I only want to work with companies that I love. And two, uh, I don't want to bombard you with too many ads. One way you can help me diminish the amount of ads. If you listen to any other podcasts, I'm sure you've noticed there's a ton of ads and I really don't want to go down that path because I think that it really, um, it diminishes the user or the listener experience because I'm a big podcast fa fan myself and I don't like to listen to five, six ads per show. So if you want to continue to keep this show with minimal, minimal, minimal ads, you can go to libertylockdown.locals.com. We're up to almost 100 monthly subscribers over there, just like five bucks a month. It really does help. Um, you know, when you have, if I can get up to a thousand, I can just do away with ads entirely and be content. So help me get there, please. Libertylockdown.locals.com. 
And before we get out of here, thank you guys so much for listening. And if you would hit the like button, share it with your friends if you found it informative and make sure you hit subscribe and maybe even hit the bell. Hit the bells that uh, you don't miss any of the new episodes. I will catch you guys soon. We're out of here. Peace. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?